while they are being released. Luke chapter 6. Jesus is drawing near to the end of this incredible sermon that we've been looking at. We are in verses 43 through 45 today. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For thou, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Like I said, Jesus is drawing near to the end of this incredible sermon that we've been looking through for the past few weeks now. Very convicting sermon. Where we have looked at what true blessedness and woe looks like in His kingdom. Uh, A kingdom which turns the world upside down in the expectations of what is true blessedness and what is true woe. We have been told to love our enemies and to do unto others as we wish for them to be done to us. We've been told to not be judging or, or condemnatory towards others. That we are to remove the log from our own eye before we seek to take the speck out of our brothers. We've been called to be instruments of mercy. Now, as Jesus ends His sermon, He does so with two parables. parable of a fruit tree, something that He loves to use, and a parable of a house built upon a rock. So we'll be looking at the next two weeks today, looking at His parable of the fruit tree. What these two parables, the way in which Christ ends this message... Is basically this. True and lasting obedience to Christ must flow from a heart that has been transformed to delight in the one it lives for. If we are to truly live out this immense calling that Christ has laid forth to us, it must happen through a transformed heart. This kind of fruit can only be bore if the nature of the tree of our heart has been changed to produce it. Remember the very last statement. He said, right? Take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree. So for, right? For is there for a reason. For or because it points us back to the previous statement. So the thing that the natural thing to do when we read this passage on a fruit tree is to think that we're called to be fruit inspectors of everybody else. But notice the context is take the log out of your own eye. 
Well, how, how do we do that? What, is, what are we looking for? Your fruit is what you're looking for. So, yes, right, we are called to be fruit inspectors, but that inspection better start in our own garden. We better spend more time in our own garden examining the fruit far more than we are walking in others' gardens. There's a place for that. Jesus uses the same parable to discuss how we know false teachers. But here, the teaching is us. Luke's account of Jesus' sermon on the plain or level here is that we would be focused inwardly. It is a sermon on introspection, examining our own fruit, our own lives. So Christ this morning holds the mirror up to us and our own hearts. He says, what fruit do you see? He says in verse 43 through 44, right? Very clear here. This beautiful picture of this agricultural statement, a tree that he uses so much throughout the Bible. Trees are everywhere in Scripture. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bushes. In these words, right, Jesus is using this metaphor to illustrate the connection between our actions and the condition of our heart. Our actions are the fruit. Our heart is the tree. You know, we can get in real deep philosophical discussions on being, our being, versus our doing. But Jesus, being the, the, the master teacher, really allows, us, really allows us to simplify for us here. By just looking to a tree. If it's, an, if it's a good orange tree, it's going to produce what? Good oranges. Good apple tree is going to produce good apples. Bad orange tree is going to produce bad oranges. The bad apple tree will produce bad apples. But one thing's for sure. An orange tree isn't going to produce apples. And an apple isn't going to produce oranges. The fruit that we bear reflects the nature we have. Very simple teaching. But immensely profound. Immensely profound. Just as a good tree naturally produces good fruit, a heart that is filled with the righteousness of Christ, the goodness and love of God's Word, will manifest good actions in the world, good fruit in the world. But a heart that remains tainted in sin, directed towards the flesh, will produce the corruption of that sin through our actions. The fruit we bear will reflect the corruption of our nature. You may say, well, we got it. That makes sense. I don't think we got it, though. Because if you were to ask most people in the world today, and I would even argue most Christians, I think most of them would say that man is basically good. You know, most people are just are good people. You know, we all mess up a little bit, right? We're all a little off. But most people to their core are good. That's what you would hear. Yeah, I think most people are good. I'm a pretty good person. You ever, you ever watch this old Way of the Master tapes like Ray Comfort? You know, and when he would go and start asking people if they'd done this or that. What was the common thing? Well, you know, if God Christ came back today, what do you think he'd say to you? And they'd go, well, I'm a pretty good person. Oh, 
overwhelmingly, I'm a pretty good person. And most of us maybe have used that argument before, or maybe still believe that. But I want you to know that the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that human nature has been absolutely corrupted to the core by sin. That the entirety of our being has been affected by the depravity of sin. When we talk about total depravity, what we don't mean is that men are as bad as they could be. That's utter depravity. What we mean is is that every part of a man, our mind, our will, our actions, our thoughts, our desires, has been tainted or touched by that sinful corruption. Like you dropping poison into a well. That poison permeates throughout the entirety of the source of water. That's what sin has done to our being. We read this throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, this is what is leading to the flood narrative. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And you may say, well, that yeah, that was before the flood though, right? Well, what does Noah do right after the flood? He gets drunk and passes out and his son seeks to shame him. So this sin problem didn't go away. Because of the flood. And a lot of times people say, if God is so good, then why is there so much bad in the world? It's because if God eradicated all the evil, there would be no humanity. There'd be no humanity. He did that once. So, if God wants to remove evil, he can do one of two things. He can either just remove all humans or he can transform them from within. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's corrupt. It's sick. It's sick. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will lead you to destruction. Something's got to change. This heart of stone and wickedness. And then Paul in Romans chapter 3, laying forth the entire universal condition of man's sinfulness. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Notice, all, Jews, Greeks, wherever you fall into it, you're in this picture. All, Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Is that comprehensive enough? This is the state of man. Universally corrupt. Our nature universally fractured by the fall of Adam. 
That from the breaking of the mold with Adam and Eve, every model after has been broken and fractured away from God. So if we're going to produce the kind of fruit that glorifies God, our nature needs to be changed. The tree needs to be changed. And this is important, though, these texts that we just looked at. Because most of us will do what Adam and Eve did. When the Lord comes to them and recognizes and lays forth to them the reality of sin and what they have done, both of them did the same thing. They deflected the blame outside of them. Adam, it, God, God, it was a woman you gave me. That ain't blaming Eve, he's blaming God. It's the woman you gave me. Eve, it was, it was the devil who made me do it. But what the Bible teaches is that your greatest enemy isn't outside of you, it's in you. This sin is what leads you to stray. The, the devil can do nothing more but like a, a like a, you're just a, a, a sinful bass swimming in this pond of, of corruption. He dangles this worm of temptation in front of you. He didn't put it in your mouth. You want it. You want it because it looks good and it tastes good and it smells good because this is where the corruption is. Your greatest enemy is in you. That's what you needed to learn. That's what Jesus came. And that's what the Jews couldn't understand. They thought it was Roman oppression. He's going to come and rid us of Roman oppression and then we'll be free. No. He came and He got us out of Egypt. Now we're free. No, you weren't. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because they weren't free from their greatest enemy. Sin. It was easy. It took one day for God to get Israel out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Our nature. Now you may be saying, Paul said no one does good. But I see people do good things all the time. Even bad people, right? They, they give benevolence and, and charity. and I mean, a lot of... Bad people even suppose like they give good stuff, right? And wicked politicians still make good laws sometimes. So, so surely that that's just that's hyperbole that Paul's saying, right? That that most people still do good stuff, right? But it's important to ask the question: When the Bible refers to the word "good," what does it mean? When Jesus says good, what does he mean by good? I'll give you a question of this. It isn't what you think it is. See, for us, good is simply that which is pleasing. That which feels good. That, that which is, is well put. So good is anything that brings pleasure to man. Remember when Jesus comes to him and someone says, Hey, good teacher. What does Jesus say to them? Why do you call me good? For no one is good but God. Jesus is demonstrating to them the very nature that they see that God is in him, that he is a reflection of God. But there's something important about that statement. No one, nothing is good but God. In other words, when the Bible speaks about goodness, 
It is that which reflects the nature of God. In our English language, we just kind of use words like love and good to just kind of mean whatever. Amazing, wonderful. But these were words in the Bible that had real meaning. When God says it's good, it reflected the glory of His nature. So when the Bible speaks of doing good, it means that it is actions, words, thoughts, deeds that are both from God and towards God. That it reflects His glory in the action. So just because an action is pleasing to man doesn't mean it's glorifying to God if it doesn't flow from Him and to Him. So there are countless people doing quote-unquote good things to people with no thought of God. Therefore, in biblical terms, it's not good. Shot to make us think about the nature and the intent behind our actions. Are we doing good just to do good, or are we doing good to glorify God? That says a lot about your fruit. The intent behind every true act of goodness must be rooted in the desire to glorify God, who is goodness Himself. So, what is good fruitness? Like, what is good fruit? Not just actions we like, because that was the case, everybody's doing that. Some things people do that we like. What is good fruit? Good fruit, according to Scripture, is fruit that is rooted in God and fruit whose sweetness produces delight in God and a desire for more of God. That's good fruit. Good fruit is not only fruit which flows out of a root in God, it produces a sweetness that causes ourselves and others to delight more in God and want more of God. You think of of, of tasting a good piece of fruit. Think of your favorite fruit. And the first time you bought it, I remember little Georgia, the first time, or no, it was Chet. That's right, it was Chet. And the first time he ate a peach, those eyes, they got like super huge. And you could just see the smile come, and he just started like trying to eat my wife's hand off. Right? It was that first moment where the juices, the sweetness of that peach's nectar filled his mouth full up, filled up his taste buds, and he wanted more of it. He was ready to take her hand off for it. That's what the fruit that comes from God should be doing in our relationship to God. That it fills our heart, it swells our heart for more delight in God, for a desire for more of God, and that it's creating in others the same delight and desire. That's good fruit, according to the Bible. So, how... How do we know whether or not we're bearing this kind of good fruit? How can we bear this kind of fruit that is from God and and causes us to delight more in God and desire more of Him? Well, here's the thing. If we want a fruit change, we need a root change. If we want a fruit change, we need a root change. We can't stay who we are if we ever expect 
that fruit to be produced. Because fruit trees never lie. I'll, like there's no apple tree that's ever going to fake me to thinking it's an orange. It is what it is. And it puts it right out there. And it tells you what kind of tree this is. If that fruit is rotten, you're knowing this is a diseased tree. It's not going to lie to me. If it's not producing fruit, I know. There's something wrong with the tree. It doesn't lie. It doesn't lie. Your nature has got to be changed or it's going to keep producing the same results. No matter how much you try to stop it, you'll just swap addictions. You just change new patterns of destruction. Your nature will eventually show up. I want to read this quote from Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian. It's a lengthy quote. But it gets to the heart of what's going on. Edwards writes, Nature is a more powerful principle of action than anything that can oppose it. Though it may be violently restrained for a while, it will finally overcome that which tries to restrain it. It is like the stream of a river. It may be stopped for a while with a dam, but if nothing be done to dry the fountain, it will never be stopped altogether. It will find a course, either in an old channel or a new one. Nature is a thing more constant and permanent than any of those things that are the foundation of carnal men's reformation and righteousness. When a natural man denies his lust and tries to live a strict religious life and seems humble, painful, and earnest in religion, it's not natural. It is a force against nature. As when a stone is violently thrown upwards... But that force will gradually be spent. The nature of the stone remains and it will fall back again to earth. As long as corrupt nature is not changed, but left the principle, it is a vain thing to expect that it should not change or govern a man. But if the old nature is changed and a heavenly nature is infused, then may it well be expected that we will walk in newness of life. And continue to do so to the end of our days. End quote. What Edwards is saying is very clear. If there's not a nature change, yeah, you can try to stop it for a moment. You can try to put up all the barriers and all of the things to make it right. But eventually, guess what? That nature is going to break through. You can only withhold nature all you want. Think about what, with our mother nature, right? Think of all of the technologies that we have created to try to help give us a... a a, a, a better ability to forecast storms and things like that. But guess what? It doesn't matter how much we forecast hurricanes, their damage is still going to happen. You can't control it. You can't stop the nature unless there is a nature change. And it is true for human nature as well. No matter how hard we try, if this heart remains a heart of stone, we can throw it with all of our might, but it will fall back down to the earth unless Christ changes it to a heart of flesh. Unless Christ changes the root, the fruit will bear itself again. Figs and grapes are set against thorns and bramble bushes, right? Figs cannot come from thorn bushes. They grow from trees. 
You, you can have all the thorn bushes in the world. They may produce flowers. But you're not going to get a fig from it. And a bramble bush, right? That, that's what we call with the bushes that produce like raspberries and blackberries. Right? They're not going to produce grapes. Notice, it's not saying that their fruit is bad, that, are, uh, that bramble bushes are producing good fruit, raspberries and blackberries. But you'll never get a grape from them. No matter how much you try, the point here is not to focus on the nature of the plants itself. It's simply the reality. They will only produce what their nature will allow. What is true of them is true for us. The reason that we do what we do and say what we say and think what we think and desire what we desire is because of who we are at the root of our heart. The root of our being. We are born, planted into the soil of sin. And that is what we will continue to produce until we're plucked out of it and grafted into a vine of righteousness. Which is precisely what Christ did for us. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, we read, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So this is what's got to happen to you in salvation. And this is what happened to you in salvation. You were plucked, you were planted deep, firm, rooted firmly in the soil of corruption, in the soil of sin, which is the only kind of fruit that you could produce. Producing fruit that was reflective of the flesh and the desires of men. Yeah, they may have been good to the world, but that's all they were good for. And Christ comes. And the Father comes, who is the dresser, and He plucks us out. This is His picture of election. He plucks us out of the soil of sin, plants us firmly in the vine of Christ, so that we can glorify Him through the life-giving fruit that flows out of us now through the life-giving power of Jesus. Plucked from the soil of sin, grafted into the vine of Christ, therefore producing the bountiful fruit that points all those who taste of it back to the vine itself. So that men would not treasure the grape, but that they would treasure the vine it came from. That is what it is to be in Christ. To abide in Him with the fertilizer of His Word flowing into us that the bountiful sweetness of fruit that flows out of us points it back to the glorious vine that we're attached to in Him. 
If you're not attached to Christ, hear me today, you can do nothing. That's what he said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing what? What does he mean? No, no fruit, no good fruit. You cannot produce the fruit that glorifies God and leads others back to Him if you're not planted in the vine of Christ. And it doesn't matter what other stuff you're producing. If you're not producing the fruit of Christ, you'll be gathered in the end and thrown into the fire. Because you were created to produce fruit for the glory of God, not the glory of self. Born in Adam, we were born in sin, and as such, we will continually produce the grapes of wrath. And that is why we must be born again. It's why we must be planted from the soil of sin and into the vine of Christ, transplanted into Him. And thus, this will produce the fruit that glorifies God. And what is this fruit? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25. The problem with the church today is we're more, we're more caught up on the gifts of the Spirit than we are the fruits. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against so, such things there are, is no law. Lord, help us produce that at Hillside. Things which there is no law against. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, been pruned, right? With its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So, what I love about this is it is so important. Is that not only are these actions that come out of us, right? Peace, patience, joy, kindness, all of these things, love. Not only are they fruits of the Spirit. But another fruit of the Spirit that is often missed in that text is the transformation of desire. Notice, He's crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, when we think about the fruit and whether or not our root has been changed as believers, it's not just about the fruit you're producing, it's the fruit you're desiring. It isn't just about what's flowing out of you, but what do you want in you? What are you going after? What do you long for to get more of in you? Because that will say a whole lot about the root. It isn't just about what you're producing. It's what you're longing for. <clears throat> Brand new trees rooted, rooted in Christ producing fruit that others might partake of. This is the call. So we have to be made brand new. And this is precisely what... Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 21, of what has happened to us in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new tree. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. He's the vine dresser, right? He's got to do it. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself, planted in the vine, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to Himself, not in counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is so important of what Paul's teaching here doctrinally 
that reflects what Christ is teaching us here in a parable. God the fine divine dresser has plucked us into, planted us into Christ. He has reconciled us to Himself by transplanting us into Jesus. And He did so, why? That we might become ambassadors of Christ, telling the whole world, be reconciled to God. That's fruit. That's fruit. And that fruit is pointing others and telling others, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. That's how we become ambassadors of Christ. By bearing fruit that causes others to say, I want that. I want that which causes me to delight and yearn for more of God. That's what it means that we become the righteousness of God. We often just read that simply to mean the imputation of of forensic righteousness. That's only a part of it. We are literally becoming the righteousness of God. That's a part we miss. We often just stop as Protestants with forensic declaration of justification. You're righteous because of your salvation in Christ. Amen. You've been declared right by God. And then we stop to forget that we are actually being sanctified where the fruits of righteousness should be being produced in our life. We have totally divorced justification from the rest of salvation. And in doing so, our message often falls short. Or it ends in an empty believism that really is not salvation. We are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. But we are saved not by works, but for them. For good works in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10. So this righteousness is pouring into us and flowing out of us in fruitfulness. The gospel message, my friend, is the antithesis to the serpent's message. Yet both of them are declaring to the world, come and eat. Satan says, come and eat. And Christ and his church says, come and eat. One will give you fruit that will lead to death. The other gives you fruit that leads to life. The gospel message is an offer of fruit. Will you have the fruit of destruction, the fruit of death, which will lead to shame and wickedness and separation from God? Or will you lead to the fruit that gives life and His name is Jesus? We're all selling fruit. The question is, is whose fruit are you selling? But this fruit is not just found in our conduct. It's also found in our conversation. Look at verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus tells us that what we not only do, but what we say originates from what is stored in our hearts. There is always a reason for the things you say. There's always a reason for the words that pop in your head. 
Our words reveal what is stored in our heart. Our hearts are like reservoirs which store up what we truly treasure. That's the only currency that your heart holds is what do you treasure? Because what you treasure will be kept in there. Everything else will just be pushed to the side. So your heart reveals what you treasure. And your words flow out of that reservoir. Where Christ is treasured in our heart, our tongues will be directed towards His glory. And this is the essence of what Paul, or excuse me, what James gets at in James chapter 3. No human being can tame the tongue. God help us. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Why? Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This sounds like a similar parable. Where's James getting at here, right? You can't be speaking out of two sides of your mouth. Why? Because your heart can only produce a single fountain. So if your heart, if your words are out there speaking corruption, you got a corrupt heart. I want you to hear that today. If the things that are flowing out of your mouth are in any way glorifying to God, because this is the thing we do, right? We as Christians love living a minimalist life. We ask the question, is it a sin? It's the lowest question you can ask of a holy God. Instead of asking, does it glorify Him? Is He magnified through my words? Magnified through my life? That's a heart that's flowing out of the wellspring of the life of Christ. Right? This is what, what James is getting to the heart at. Your tongue, right? The reason why man can't tame his tongue is because man can't change his own nature. No more than the leper can change his spots. God's got to do it. If that tongue which can create wars and conflict and destroy lives, if it's ever going to be changed, I need this source changed. This reservoir changed. I need what I treasure to be changed. Because what's down in the well will always come up in the bucket. Our our lips and mouths were formed and fashioned. Our tongues formed and fashioned for the purpose of making much of God. Psalm 141 verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is what? A fountain of life. Is that what's flowing forth from your lips today? Is that what's pouring out towards your spouse? Towards your children? Towards your co-workers? 
Or is the waste of worldliness flowing from our lips as opposed to the wine of godliness? I love that it says it's a fountain. Why? Because fountains have a source. What's feeding, right? Your lips of the righteous, meaning there's been a change here, is a fountain of life. Why? Because it's flowing from the source of life. So what is coming out of your fountain? Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6. For the fool speaks folly. Why? Because his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness. To utter error concerning the Lord. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied. And to deprive the thirsty of drink. Notice, right? Not only does he speak foolishly, but he lives wickedly. Why? Because his heart is busy with iniquity. The root is corrupt. And therefore his conduct and his conversation is corrupt. My friends, like the miracle at Cana, the the most satisfying wine that can ever flow from our lips, which brings life and joy to those around us and leads them to find satisfaction in the one who gave it, can only flow, flow from the stony heart that's been touched by Jesus. We need, the well, we need the miracle at Cana to happen in our heart. When He touched that, that stony, purifying jar, a place for cleaning and washing hands of corruption and dirt, and He turns the cleaning water, the water that's used for washing hands and feet in stones that would be a place of dirt and corruption, and He puts in them the sweetest of wine. That's what we want flowing out of our lips so that others would taste of its sweetness and yearn to delight in knowing who gave this wine, who brought this wine. We need a heart that's been touched by Christ. A heart that's been transformed by Christ. What we give out is a reflection of what are we storing up. And my friends, I want to just give a quick plug here. This is why we do Awana. Because from the time they are little, we are teaching these children to store the Word of God in their heart. To fill up the reservoir of God's Word. Because guess what? One day, by His grace and mercy, the Lord will convert that little one. And in that moment, all of that, that, that flood of Scripture and truth that's been poured into their life will pour through the dam of the flesh and flood into their being all of the precious promises of God. And so the Lord says to us in Psalm 1 verse 1 through 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night For he is like a tree, here we go again, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Fruitful. Why? Because of where it's planted. The tree needed to be planted by a source of living water. 
In order that that might store up. And what is that storing up seen as? Meditating on God's law, His word, His promises, His His precious truths. Meditating on them day and night. Filling us up fully with the provision and sustenance of God. That we might flourish. And others might say, oh, that we might know of this fruit. That they may be pointed to the one who planted us by the stream and who is the stream and whose word fills us day and night with its promises. Blessed is the man who does this. Notice though, I love the language there. If you can just put that slide back up. Notice where they're spending their time. With the wicked, with sinners, and with scoffers. I love it at the the very last statement, sitting, right? You see the, the progression from walking to standing to sitting. Notice the man's getting more comfortable. And notice it starts with the wicked to ending with scoffers. Why? Because what's in the well comes out of the bucket. So the wicked end up being what? Scoffers. That's here. That's mouth. That's speaking. So as man gets more comfortable, his fruit becomes clearer. See, it was easy to fight in the beginning. But the more comfortable we got, the fruit got a lot more easy to produce. Because we saw that everyone liked it. Oh, these these people like when I speak this way. They like when I talk like this. But not he who is blessed by the Lord. He produces the fruit of the Spirit. And his desires are towards the Lord in all things. And he stores up in that reservoir of his heart the glorious truths of God's Word, which by the Holy Spirit, He writes on it Himself. When we come to the Word of God day by day, drinking at the fountain of living water, which is nothing less than the triune God Himself, the abundance of His glory will well up in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and pour out through both our lives and lips of worship. Producing fruit that declares to the world, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. So, I close with this bit of application today. How do we cultivate greater fruitfulness in our conduct and conversation? Well, the first thing that we must do is we need to examine our heart and the fruit it's producing. You need to examine yourself. You need to be a fruit inspector, but you need to be in your own garden first. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're of the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. In other words, how do you know if you're in Christ? And that Christ is in you. What fruit's in your life? Is your fruit and the desire for fruit that is glorifying to Him abundantly present in your life? If it isn't, the Lord's saying, repent. Press into me. Surrender to me. Lest you be found like a fig tree that when the Lord showed up, there was no fruit. There was no fruit. But, 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 but it's a weird text because the fruit tree wasn't in season. That's because the fruit tree didn't know its Lord. 
Fruit tree was a picture of Israel. Who when the Lord arrived to them, they rebelled and they killed Him. Because they did not realize what season it was. May that not be true for us. And then when the Lord returns, that He finds a fruitful people. So examine your heart and the fruit it's producing. Where it's not, Lord, help me here. Help me be more fruitful again. Show me. Show me where I need to be further grafted into You, planted deeper into You. Show me what, what, what part of Your Word that I need to be filling in my, my life with. Where, where am I neglecting the, the treatment of this beautiful tree, this heart that You put in me? Secondly, establish your heart in Christ. Examine your heart and then establish it. Firmly root it in Christ. Firmly press yourself into Him. James chapter 5, verse, verse 1-8. through I love this. Because He talks about the fruit of worldliness and how we are called to live in light of it. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. Why? You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. It's been all about you. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers. It's to us now. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. You see, the great, the great lie of the enemy is that things need to be happening according to my time. And when it's not, I, I just want to go make it for myself. I just got to go do it for myself. And I'm not getting what I want here. So I'm going I'm to go to a church where I'm feeling this stuff more, even though I'm not actually getting the word of God. And I'm going to go to a place where I'm feeling better and I'm, and I'm getting these things and I'm doing those things for myself and I'm getting them because I just ain't got time to wait on you, Lord. Time's short. i got to do it. But when you, when you find yourself in that moment of frustrations and, and, and uncertainty as to what's happening and what's going on in the world around you, the call of James is be patient and establish your heart in the Lord. In other words, trust God and lean not into your own understanding. Pour, pull, push deeply, burrow yourself into the vine of Christ and wait to receive the early and later rains that He provides in the Word. As He falls down upon you and pours into you in the realities of the Holy Spirit. Be patient and establish your heart in the Lord. Don't let it be pulled away to the fattened offerings of the world which only lead to destruction. Thirdly, 
eliminate the remnants of, oh, excuse me, let's go First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. I want to see this one first about establishing your hearts. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Well, say, well, what is it, Blake? Do we establish our hearts? Or does Jesus do it like it says? Yes. This is the miracle of sanctification. God is at work in you to will and work His good pleasure. He is establishing your heart so that you can establish your heart. So how do I know God's at work in me? Are you seeking to establish your heart? Are you longing for more of the fruit? Are you desiring to see eager manifestations of Christ working in the world, making much of Himself? If you are, then He's working in you. He did it. It's both and. The beauty of the realities of sanctification. Thirdly, eliminate the remnants of corruption when they spring up. Listen, we still have remnants of the flesh in us. And you better believe there are going to be times when some bad apples pop up in your life. And I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about you. You producing bad apples. The way you're talking, the way you're treating people. What you're looking at, those bad apples, that picks that, that those aspects of corruption are, are, are coming up and they're starting to spring in your life. You know what you do to them? You cut them off. You prune them. Or they'll kill the whole tree. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. It'll mess it all up if you just let it sit. That disease will spread to every part of the vine. If you don't prune the righteous fruit, the, the, excuse me, the unrighteous fruit. John chapter 15, verse 2. Notice once again, the Lord does it and we're called to do it. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That corrupt fruit, it's got to get cut off. Why? To make room for better fruit that glorifies Him. And pruning hurts. It hurts to have stuff cut off. Which is why Jesus uses the language He does in Matthew 18. If your hand or your foot calls you to sin, cut it off. and Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled. Or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin... Tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in the fire of hell and hell in the hell of fire. What's the point here? Should we just be going out here ripping our eyes out and cutting hands off? Some people did that. Wrong. That's not the picture. It's those desires that's causing your hand to act against you. That's turning your eyes towards that which is not glorifying to God. Soon as you see the blemish Cut it off. As soon as you, you see it and, and, and recognize this isn't glorifying God, this is going to mess up the rest of the fruit. This is going to mess up this, this harvest that Christ is pouring out of my life. Cut it off. Get rid of it. We are called to be a holy, set-apart people. So when the blemishes arise, you cut them off. And you say, Lord, help change me. Pour into me whatever is needed to keep that kind of corruption from flowing out of me again. And then lastly, embrace the treasure of being rooted in Christ. 
It's the greatest gift in the world. To know that you've been planted in the perfect source of life. Which will flow life and blessing in abundance to you for all eternity. For all eternity. Abiding in the Lord. In the delightful worship that we are called to do is fertilizer in our heart that feeds our spiritual growth. Abide in Him. Joy satisfied. As you press further into Him, let the delights of the fruit, the yearning for more of it, mark your heart because that's the thing you're storing up in here. Is Christ your treasure? If so, then out of that reservoir, you will live and speak. John chapter 15, verse 5 through 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you hear that word over and over again. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here it is, right? This is the whole point. Abide in Christ. What does it mean to abide? It means to deeply pour ourselves into the fullness of all that we have in Christ and to say, I don't want to go anywhere else. When everyone else was walking away from Jesus, after He said His hard saying in John chapter 6, He looks at the disciples and says, aren't you going to go with them? And Peter says, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's what it is to abide. Where else are we going to go? I don't want anything or anywhere unless I'm with you, Christ. In Exodus, when they're getting ready to set out to the wilderness... You know what Moses prays? Moses says, I'm not going anywhere, God, unless you're with us. I won't take a step off this mount unless you're going to be with me. That's what it is to abide in Christ. I won't do anything apart from you, Jesus, because I can't. I don't want to go anywhere apart from you. Why? John 15, 11. This is what abiding does. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's the reservoir that's being filled when you abide in the vine of Christ. That your lives and your lips may flow out of the abundance of joy that you have in Jesus. This is the essence of the joy that flows out of us. And so we must pray, change my heart, Jesus. Root me deeply in you. Prune me of all corruption. Make my life and lips fruitful for your glory. That not only I, but others may taste of your sweetness and be lured away from the serpent that bids them to eat the poisonous fruit that brings to death and that that draws them to you that they may taste of the fruit of life that you alone can give. Change my heart, God. Help me abide in you, Jesus. So that Psalm 92 may come true. Of all of us. The righteous flourish like the palm tree. And grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of Lord. They flourish in the courts of God. They still bear fruit in old age. Hear that? My older brothers and sisters. 
You never retire from saintly service. Even to old age, you will bear fruit in Christ. That's the prayer for all of us. They are full of sap and green life to declare that the Lord is upright lips. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in Him. I want to be planted in the vine of Christ. I want to be the tree planted behind by streams of living water that produces the fruit of the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ. That all might be lured to the sweetness that God alone offers in Him. Oh Lord, make that true for us. My friend, today, if you're not feeling or seeing this fruit in your life, there's only one thing to say to you. Repent and believe on Jesus. That you might be grafted and planted firmly into Him. For those of us who are in Christ, abide. Abide deeply in the vine of Christ and pray, God, blossom out of me the fruit that will glorify you in all things. Abide in Christ and the fruit of your lives will blossom for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and we pray, Lord, change our heart. Change our nature, O oh Lord. Everyone here who has yet to know You, Lord, I pray right now that in sovereign grace You would change their heart. That You would take out of them that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That they may know You intimately, be reconciled to You in faith. And and not only that, be indwelled by the Holy Spirit which turns our heart into a reservoir of Your Word, that we may treasure You all of our days and that that treasure may flow out of our lives and lips into fruit that glorifies You. Lord, help us examine our heart this morning. Put our hearts before our eyes to see how we look, to see what You see, because You see the heart, God. Show us the fruit and what it's flowing out of. Lord, prune away any corruption that remains. Pour it away. Pull it away. Pluck it off. Anything that is not glorifying to You. Anything that is being destructive to our lives and to our relationships. Cut it off, God. Lord, set a guard over our lips that we may glorify You in all that we say. That our mouths would be a fountain of life flowing from a transformed heart that desires nothing else but to make much of You. Oh Lord, let us be planted in You. And let our our fruit glorify You in all things. Change our heart. And let us abide in You forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.